Welcome to Curva Mundial. Hello, and welcome to Curva Mundial. I am your host, Sal Bono, and today my next guest is the author of the acclaimed new book, USA 94, The World Cup That Changed the Game. Having read it, I can attest it's easily in my top 10 books on this sport. He's also a fan of Ipswich Town. Please welcome to the show, author, Matt Evans. Hello, Matt. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Sal. Thanks for having me on. We're looking forward to our chat. Yeah, me too, man. So you're coming to us from Wales, which did not qualify for the 1994 World Cup. So what prompted you to write this? Um, well, I was I was 13 that summer in 94. Um, I've always been a huge football fan um, ever since I was like three or four years of age, ever since I started kicking a ball around with my dad and my brother. Um, and by the time I was 13, I was really sort of getting back into football. I sort of fell out of love with it slightly um, due to high school and um, things like that. I'd sort of fallen out of love with the game. But USA 94 came at a great time for me. It sort of got me re-engaged with football and, you know, all the great players on display and stuff. It really, it really drew me back into the game. And it's a memory that's always sort of stuck with me, how much that tournament sort of got me back re-engaged with the game that I'd, I'd loved since, you know, as early as I can remember. Nice. You know, the book opens in the most American fashion possible by documenting the O.J. Simpson slow speed chase in L.A. Uh, on the opening day of the World Cup. It's a day that lives in American sports and tabloid infamy. Do you think that that set the tone for what the tournament would be like for the rest of the month here in America? Well, obviously, over here in the U.K., I mean, the the O.J. Simpson story was uh, was covered on the news, etc., but to, to a lot of us over here, we didn't really know who he was. We just recognised him from, like, the Naked Gun films. Um, didn't realise what a sort of, you know, what a huge, um, like, sports uh, legend he was in the, in the um, over in the US. But um, I think seeing the, the footage on the news, the, the, the car chase and, you know, the, the helicopters whirring overhead, it was, I think... <laughs> Without, without being, you know, trying to offend anyone, it was like really, it's like someone out of a US movie, you know, it was something that, you know, over here in the UK, we'd had a lot of US, a lot of US culture, uh, it sort of infiltrated British culture. So I think it was, um, it was sort of typical of that sort of uh, time, really. It truly was. I mean, and as a, there's a great, documentary uh june 6 1994 if you've never seen it it's just told through all the news clips of the day on like every sport in america something was happening and obviously it starts with chicago and the kickoff and uh you know diana ross as you eloquently wrote about and the and the miss scene around the world um but it's it was a bizarre it's still, you know, all these years later, decades later, it's still a bizarre experience to anyone that had lived it. I just remember watching my New York Knicks in a NBA championship and like them cutting through and giving updates on it. But um, needless to say, like it, in a lot of ways here, it, it overshadowed everything. And obviously FIFA had done so much to make sure that everybody watched USA 1994. So it's cur- I'm always curious to see like what, the take was like outside of these borders. Yeah, well, I'd, I'd spoke to um, uh, on my research. I, I'd read things about like the European-based football journalists that were, were were covering the World Cup, and when the OJ story was was breaking, they've been like the press boxes and stuff, and the, the US reporters were sort of like going mad about, oh my god, have you seen what's happening? And like I've just said, then a lot of the European uh, and UK based reporters were like, who is he? Wow. And they show they show him, oh, and yes, it's it's Nordberg out with naked gun. You know, it was it was literally, you know, it, I suppose that is the, the pre-internet days where, you know, it was it was hard for you know information to spread as quickly as it does today. Um so yeah, so I think uh, uh, there's a lot of um confusion, a lot of they couldn't understand. People were just sitting watching TV screens of a car driving very slowly um, down the road, you know, and there's like, well, there's, there's football going on. There's, you know, obviously it was the NBA finals, you know, there's all this other stuff going on. Why are you all just watching a, a car driving very slowly down the road? You know, 
Um, so yeah, so I think I think on these shows and in, in Europe there was a there was a bit of a amusement really about the, the fascination of it all. But um, that that sorry that part of the book was the beginning. It was actually one of the last things I wrote because I, wow. I, I felt that I felt that the the OJ story as much as okay it didn't really have anything to do with the World Cup. Well, I think, it, like you said, it sets the scene of what was going on at that time in the country and also, you know, in the world, really. For sure. You know, it is interesting to, like, as you talked about pre-internet age and pre-how fast information moves, you know, imagine if, if it was David Beckham in 1994, where, and the, and it was the opposite, right? It was the reverse, where, America mostly would have known him from underwear modeling. Yeah. Had, pretend like he never came to the LA Galaxy for a minute. Yeah, most Americans would have just known him from modeling. So you know, and if he, if something similar were to happen, like that would have been like the statue. Like it was, you know, it in it. It's crazy to hear like what it's like again outside of the borders as someone that grew up in that period because OJ was just so huge and knowing that like he wasn't a thing is kind of also like amazing to see like what the world was like or remember what the world was like at that time where there were just celebrities in the country that they were from and that not everybody is internationally known. You know, I, I don't want to keep talking about OJ, but there is something that um, was super special about this cup for so many folks. But what was your memory watching this tournament like all those years ago? I think for me it was just like the huge stadiums um watching world cup games and like brilliant sunshine everything seemed a lot sort of brighter the, the pitches seemed brighter you know the, the players that were on display as well I, I don't think you've had such a collection of uh legendary names in a world cup since then you know so the, the likes of Haji, Stoichkov, um you know Maradona uh Romario you know Mateus, Klinsman, those sort of players. You know, there was Baggio. There was just legend after legend. Um, so, so for me, it was just, it was like it was football and technical for me, really. You know, it was that um, sort of dawning of a new age of football for me. You know, I was ten when the World Cup '94 happened in the States. It's a top five World Cup for me. Probably ranks number three behind Italian '90 and Germany '06, respectively. Uh, this was a beautiful game, almost at its finest. And it was about to explode in arenas and stadiums around the world like never before, once they tapped into that American market. I was a kid who had a funny name in a typical all-American town with an immigrant parent and a massive Italian family that had broken English that was constantly at my house. But in my little world and bubble of where I grew up in my typical, again, American town, my neighbors didn't really give a shit that this tournament was happening. Whereas like we were sort of party central with this tournament. But again, like now that I look at, and we talked about this in the pre-interview that four years from now, the U S is going to co-host this tournament with Canada and Mexico. And now it seems like every American I talked to, oh, you know, and, or everybody that wasn't in tune to it in 94 is super excited for it now do you think that that's because of what happened in 94 or do you think that that's more of the internet and how fast and they, again tying it back into what we talked about earlier where obviously the era is different but there's more accessibility to the sport that it's not just a funny ball being kicked around with people with funny names anymore when I was doing the research, some of the guys I spoke to worked for US Soccer or USSF at the time. You know, they were saying to me that there's always been a level of um, football fandom in the country, but it was more of it like um, it was more of a participation sport. It was something the kids went and done at the weekend. You know, it was it wasn't something that people went and watched. It wasn't a it wasn't a spectator sport. It, you know, it was it was converting that grassroots level interest into selling tickets and getting it to the next level where it was filling stadiums and engaging with, you know, the rest of the country. And I mean, like over, over here at the time, there was like news 
coverage of um, you know vox pops on the streets, various cities in in the US, asking them what you know are you looking forward to the World Cup? And there was people saying what what is it? I don't even know what it is. And then you get people over here, you know, saying like, oh, the the state shouldn't even host it. The country doesn't even know what's going on, you know, and a certain level of snobbery, certainly from like the British British media, where it was like, you know, you're. US, they they're sort of stealing our game. They don't deserve to to host the you know the World Cup. The country doesn't know what's going on. But I think as as shown from the attendance uh, levels, you know, not been beaten since. You know, there is like you said, there's large large immigration, um, uh, large large migrants in 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 the states. So, you know, there was that interest in football that's come through. Uh, passed down through generations, you know. Um, but I think I'd, I'd like to think that you know, without USA '94, that there wouldn't be a World Cup in 2026 in the states. I think that USA '94 certainly sort of set the ball rolling in encouraging um, people to fall in love with the game. You know, obviously the MLS started in '96. You know that that's grown. You know, that was going back like 10, 15 years ago. That was, a, oh, that's a league where, you know, players just go for one last payday. Whereas now you're seeing, you know, young players go over there. You've seen a lot of players come over, come from South America. They see it as, you know, a, um, a good step in their career. It's not just somewhere to go just to play out your final, you know, your final few years, you know. So I, I do think that USA 94 certainly, um, certainly kick-started, um, you know, the, football and, and and how much it's grown in the last you know 20 odd years you know it leads me right into my next question because you close the book so eloquently saying that italian 90 proved what football could achieve and usa 94 kicked down the door kicked it right off the hinges and saying quote the genie was out of the bottle and football was on its way to becoming the global force that it is today end quote do you think the USA 94 was the last pure World Cup? And the irony happens is that it, it takes place in the biggest capitalist country in the world. Yeah, I think it absolutely was. I mean, I, I think it was the last World Cup where obviously the Champions League was still in its sort of infancy. Um, global, you know, being able to watch any game from around the world any day of the week, you know, that wasn't the sort of thing at the time, certainly not here in the UK. Um, <clears throat> whereas obviously now you can literally turn the TV on any night of the week and you can watch a game, you know, from, from wherever in the world. Um, so, yeah, so I think like <clears throat> Italian 90 was important in that it brought football out of the doldrums of the 80s, the stadium disasters, the hooliganism, etc., And it made people realise that, you know, you didn't have to be a thug or a hooligan or whatever to go and watch the football. You know, you could go and watch the games if you were, you know, a female or you could take, your, you know, your kids safely. And then I think, like I said, when USA 94 come around, it just, I think it was at the time as well where we were moving into like the 24-hour news cycles, the, like I said, the internet, pre-internet days. I think by the time US um, France 98 come around, I think the world had certainly certainly shifted, um, not not just from a, from a football standpoint, but from you know an information standpoint, a cultural standpoint. I think the world the world was sort of um, had evolved definitely, and I think ninety four, the USA ninety four, is the beginning of that. I agree, you know, and the one thing that as a kid, as a wild eyed, naive kid that you know loved Indiana Jones and just wanted to travel the world but couldn't because you know you're 10 um it, the world cup was the one thing and it's still to this day like it stirs up every emotion for me because i get to travel the world without ever having to leave my house it's beautiful and i get to see and experience different cultures and especially where the tournament will be played for someone like like myself, where it's it was in America in 94. I know these football stadiums. They're huge. They're cathedrals. They are probably, if, if there is anything that America has exported really well, aside from Disney and Coca-Cola, it is what a stadium should look like. For you, growing up in the UK, that also has these amazing historic cathedrals. Like, what was that like seeing these, like, football played in an American football stadium and seeing the 
mammoth amount of fans. Like every stadium is the size of Wembley. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the stadiums over over here, certainly in the nineties, the fans were quite close to the pitch, and you know they were usually like two tier stands. Um, so to go to see games in the states where they were just like these huge, like cavernous bowls, you know, like to the Rose Bowl, with no no roof on any of the stands, and you know things like that. It was it was um, yeah, really uh, really amazing seeing. Like I said, every stadium was sort of was like that. You know, I think it was. Uh, it was RFK. I think that was the that was the smallest, but even that was like 60,000, you know. And I think for the organisers to have them have the games at these stadiums before they'd sold the tickets, you know, that was a big. You know, they they must have been confident they were going to sell them out because there'd been nothing worse than you know a ninety thousand stadium with like twenty thousand people in it. You know, it'd be, it'd be, it'd be, it'd be terrible. So, you know, hats off to them. Well, they said that they originally planned to have them at, um, like, college. I know the college uh, stadiums are huge in the States anyway, but I think, you know, hats off to them to, to, to host these games at these huge, huge arenas. You know, like I said, if, if they hadn't sold tickets, it would have looked terrible, but, you know, hats off to them. Yeah, some, um, like I said, some legendary, you know, stadiums like the Rose Bowl, even like Soldier Field. Um, and I knew Soldier Field from um, being being an NFL fan. I knew Soldier Field from there, and you know, I think to have to have some of these iconic stadiums involved. Um, you know, like I said, for me, it was just the, the sheer size of them and the, the bowls. I thought were great. You know, the, the like I said, the roofless bowls in, in especially the Rose Bowl. You know, certain camera angles you can see like palm trees lining the the tops of the stands. It was yeah. Real, real sort of iconic sort of stadiums for me. Yeah, it is. It's something that I still even marvel at here. Like, wow, like what what we have. I mean, we have Giant Stadium where a lot of the games that you wrote about is torn down. It is now MetLife Stadium. It's kind of ugly. Um, it's the stadium closest to me here in the New York area. It's kind of, but I look at that and I shake my head going like, it was a bajillion dollars and it's ugly. Whereas like in Texas where the Cowboys play, and I believe one of the games will be, or few of the games will be played in four years. It's this high tech super stadium, you know, it's a stadium, brand new stadium in Vegas now that just like, it's unbelievable. Like what has happened now I see this as like, the influence that it's had American stadiums have had on the rest of the world. You see the beautiful Allianz stadium where Bayern Munich play. It's just unbelievable. Um, you know, do you see that like, this is all stemming from USA 94 is that the rest of the world now saw this tournament and said, Hmm, if we can get the cash, let's upgrade the stadiums and make them look like that. Yeah. I think as well, a lot of it is, it comes down to, they're not just, sports stadiums anymore are they they need to be like 365 day the uh you know venues that can host all sorts of things i mean you look at the likes of tottenham stadium you know they've they've agreed a deal with the nfl to host games there now and you know i think that a lot of these uh huge um football clubs now see it as you know if you if you can spend the money and, and get a, a you know a world class venue. It opens up a lot more sort of doors to you. Um, and, and obviously, like you said, that the 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 NFL stadiums, like that that SoFi Stadium, yeah. the, the Rams. It's just like I seen the when the Super Bowl was there. They showing like on on Sky Sports here. They showing like a five minutes showing you around the stadium. It's just like it's unbelievable. You know, it's absolutely unreal the place. You know, so I think. Um, I think with a lot of clubs as well, it's like bigger the better. You know, someone sets a standard, someone's got up, someone wants to try and beat it, you know. Um, and I mean, like so America, you know, in the States, it goes back to like the Dallas Cowboys with them, um, you know, their their old stadium, Jerry Jones, you know, where he had to have he had to have the roof so what's it God could watch his team, that sort of thing. You know, I think it's it, it's always that thing of like, you know, someone <laughs> someone does something, there's always someone out there who's like, We we can beat that. Yeah, it's it's it really is it's a pissing contest for big billionaires it's uh it's I, I wonder like where it goes next and i wonder what happens in four years like once the technology and once the building gets better now does it again transfix the rest of the world and inspire other 
countries to then just build and build and build. Architecture aside, USA 94 had all the characters and headlines. Baggio's grit and tenacity to that unfortunate missed penalty kick. Baresi coming back from knee surgery 25 days after he went under the knife. Maradona's last stand. The Escobar tragedy. Uh, and of course, Maradona being escorted off the field and ultimately kicked out of the tournament. Bulgaria's brute force. Other former Soviet Union nations doing well for the first time since the wall fell. And of course, Brazil and the redemption of 1982 and the cup for Ayrton Senna. In many ways, these headlines make it the most American because of how sensational and almost tabloidish the storylines were. Do you feel like that was the case? Yeah, I mean, looking at it from you know a, a British point of view, speaking to not a lot of people, but certain people I spoke to during the process of writing the book, you know, oh, USA '94. I don't really remember much about that tournament. Um, it sort of passed me by and I don't know if that comes down to like there being no England or you know being no home nations involved but when you list some of the things like you just have to them oh yeah I remember all that <laughs> you know oh, oh, oh did that happen in that World Cup yes it did so I think certainly from British from British shores um, I think it was overlooked in certain areas but you know if you speak to Brazilian fans, Swedish fans, Romanian fans, Bulgarian fans, you know, it's one of the, you know, highlights of their of their life. You know, it, it it brings back great memories for them. So yeah, like it's only when you actually sit down and, and, and list all the things that sort of happened in and around the tournament at the time, you know, you probably couldn't do that for any any of the other World Cups, I don't think. Certainly stuff that was going on off the pitch, like you said, with like Escobar and Maradona, and even like what we touched on with OJ Simpson, you know. If you looked at, like, I don't know, 2002, 2010, 86, there were certain things, but certain things you remember. But I think if you actually sat and listed everything that went on, on and off the pitch, I don't think USA 94 can be beaten, to be honest. I agree. And that's the thing where, like, your book kind of, like, had my gears turning in my head going, like, Italia 90 is my favorite World Cup. I've talked about it a million times. And I will continue to talk about it forever. But... That tournament, it felt like an opera. And what do Italians do really well? We do the opera really well. 94 was American in both size and stature, but also, as you said, though, and we talked about those off-field antics. It was the off-field things that, you know, had the journalism been what it is today back then, I almost feel like as if 94 would have been eclipsed any other World Cup in history because of the fact that, like, it just would have just the machine would have been fed over and over and over and over again. The fact that Bulgaria gets as far as they do, that's a Cinderella story. Baggio, of course. And I'm, and I hate the fact that like one of the greatest players of all time will have like the worst moment of his career, just looked at as like the symbol for what that whole month was like. But on the flip side, there was another great player of all time being escorted off the fucking pitch by a nurse because he failed the doping test. So like that's the thing. It's like I kind of wish we could do have a do-over, but with the attention that we give the sport now, you know? Like how do you feel like do, am I am I crazy thinking that? No, I think like you know, Italia 90, I mean, again talking from like a British standpoint, obviously England got to the semis, it was Gaza's tears, it was the you know, the heartache of a penalty shootout, it was, you know, all that drama. But, you know, like you said, with 94, especially like you said, with Baggio, you know, it looked, without Baggio, Italy wouldn't even have got anywhere near the final, you know, and it was sort of written that, you know, Baresi had come back, Baggio, you know, had an injury himself. He'd literally dragged Italy to the final. And you thought, this is this is his moment. This is going to be his, like, you know, like at Maradona at 86. This is, this is going to be Baggio's, you know, tournament is is defining moment you know after all he's been through all his bad injuries and you know the the iconic moment of the world cup was you know him stood there you know shirt on top hands on hips looking down at his boots you know um and yeah it, it would have been interesting certainly to have you know if, if likes of twitter was was um around at the time and you know to see how, how it would have been sort of covered on online especially but um yeah, I think it's just 
people say about oh, you know, iconic moments and the iconic moments of Italian ninety. You know, from from my point of view, as I said, Gaza's tears eighty six. You got the hand of God. You know, and in ninety four, it was the iconic moment. You know, was Baggio, you know, missing the missing the penalty. Um, and I think you know, any any World Cup worth its salt has to have that iconic moment. It was just sort yeah. of. Sadly for Baggio, it wasn't him, you know, scoring a penalty to win to win the tournament, which is, I think, what his performance would have um, definitely deserved. Yeah, it's... I, as a 10-year-old kid watching that, and I get emotional thinking about it, I'm just like, oh, man. Like, I was so young and so immature that I sit there going like, ah, why did you take this? Why, you know, but you, yeah, just, yeah. you grow up and you, you know you learn things and realize like what's gone on in the world and what's gone on and you have more life experience You sit there and you say to yourself for a man called the divine ponytail, he was human after all. Yeah. And, and it's kind of okay, you know, and it is, and it's okay. And it's okay to not win everything. And, and, and it's funny because as you talked about, like he was so great, he was so just special and he, he drags this team who on paper should have just not needed any sort of dragging to the final. And he's doing it in a country that's just obsessed with winning. And he's kind of not obsessed with what he's kind of just obsessed with peace, which is sort of the most anti-American thing. To ever, like, so again, like there's so much, there's so many layers and complexities to that tournament and your book had me thinking just so much in each chapter. And as a, you know, and as an Aturri fan, as an Italian American, reading it and just going, diving into it, I'm just, I'm thinking of things that I never quite thought about. And one of those is, is that moment. Everybody in Italy soon forgives Baggio for what happens. It's a pat on the back. It's all right, mate, you know, we'll get him next time. But has there ever been a player so universally loved like him where like he played for rival teams he 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 doesn't lose the tournament because let's also face it paluka doesn't make a ton of saves in that shootout i like he doesn't save a lot from brazil um and the blame needs to be put on other people you know but as he misses his friend his kick as well like it's not just baggio's fault he does feel the weight of the world and as you said there's that iconic moment it's the head down it's the italian version of gaza really but has there ever been a player that's just so acclaimed and so loved and so just forgiven? Because I don't think any other player in any other country would have been forgiven for what happened. And again, Baggio doesn't deserve the, the finger wagging, but it was, it was not forgotten, but it was forgiven. Yeah, I think the journey he'd been on as a, as a player from, you know, his very early days where he'd had serious knee injuries that he'd came back from. And, you know, I think he was like allergic to like painkillers and stuff. And that was when he sort of reverted to Buddhism and things like this, you know, not only the journey that he'd been on in it throughout his career, but also the journey he'd been on throughout the tournament. You know, the first game, he was sort of marked out the game by like Paul McGraw and Italy lost, you know, and you can think, you can imagine what the, Scenes were like back in Italy, you know. You can imagine what the, the newspaper stories were like, you know, one game in, lost, and then the second game, obviously, um Paiuca gets sent off and Baggio sacrificed and for for the for the sub goalie, and you sort of think, you know, the personal journey he went on throughout the just throughout the tournament, let alone throughout his career. You know, and obviously Italian football fans, you know, that they're a passionate bunch, but you know, they they know they know their stuff as well. And, you know, like you said, the fact that he's played for literally every top club pretty much in um, in Italy, you know, shows how how he is revered in the country by football fans. You know, there's nothing, it's not held against him. I mean, you, you ain't going to look at, like, four years later, the, the treatment that, like, David Beckham got right. here, um, you know, in, in certain in certain parts of, of England after getting sent off, you know, effigies of him being hung off lampposts and things like that, you know, ridiculous. But I think, yeah, I think with Baggio, it wasn't so much like the journey he'd been on as a player, but also, you know, the story within the story, you know, the, the journey he went on in the tournament, you know. 
And like I said, Italy on paper, a great side, but I think without him, certainly in the knockout stages, you know, I think it, it, Italian football fans were savvy enough to know that, you know, without Baggio, they wouldn't have got near the final. For sure, for sure. You know, on the first episode of this podcast, I had my friend T.C. Newman on, and she performed with Whitney Houston at the halftime of the final between Brazil and Italy. She mentioned that in parts of the Rose Bowl, FIFA gave tickets to local youth teams and to children so they could experience the game of games. In four years' time, we know North America, as we discuss, is co-hosting this tournament again. Here's the sad thing. I don't see FIFA doing that charity ever again. What, what do you, I can see your face. I wish, I wish I did a video podcast just for the face <laughs> that you just made. No, I mean, I, I spoke to, again, during my research, I spoke to people and they said that like, you know, literally the sad, sad thing is now with some World Cups, FIFA literally turn up and tell you what you're doing. You know, it, it, the sad thing about World Cups now is it's lost it's lost the sort of personal touch from each country that's, you know, that's hosting. They can almost not put their own sort of country's flavour into the organisation, into, the, you know, that side of things. It's almost as if FIFA turn up and it's like, this, this is how you're putting on the tournament. This is what you're doing. So it would it would be it would be great because, you know, imagine how, how many of those kids that got a chance to watch, um you know, to watch the final, how many of them will be going to games in, in 2026 with their kids, you know, just off the back of going to that game, you know, reading stories about like, you know, Clint Dempsey said he was, remembers watching games growing up and, you know, Landon Donovan, what a huge effect, you know, it had on them. So, you know, it, it, I'd love FIFA to, to do initiatives like that because I think, you know, that is, you know, with with football, it's getting kids interested at a young age. You know, it's it's passing it on to the next generation. You know, I, I was took to games by my dad when I was like four or five years old, just local games. You know, when it's that, it's that that sort of like sparks something within you. Then and, and now I take I take my sons to games. You know, it's that it's that passing on. You know, passing on from from generation to generation. So yeah, as much as I love FIFA to do that. I can't see it to be honest. You know, give give tickets to a load of school kids or sell them. You know, corporately, it's there's only there's, sadly there's only going to be one winner there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it just it gets me so bummed out. I don't even want to get this because I, I love the sentiment that you brought up about a father bringing his kids to the next cup because they experienced it as a kid with their parents and so on and so forth. I just I can't stop just screaming already at what I can only imagine the ostentatious ticket prices will be in four years time where like families can't do that. And it's expensive here now. And it's expensive in this country now that four years time is only going to be worse. And I don't know, like you have like, no, no, not like games that don't mean anything. These friendlies that take place in America over the summer is going for like hundreds of dollars. That's that's not fair. Like what to see Real Madrid play Club America, which is awesome. Don't get me wrong, but neither one of those teams gives a shit. Like it's not. It then it's and why should it cost like a father or a mother? I don't know six seven hundred bucks in tickets. Like and that's just off the top. Like and that's just for crap seats. That's not like that's not. Yeah, we're not sitting talking on the touchline here. I can go on like. I might just do a special rant episode, which I don't really do rant episodes, but it's something that like, I, I wish that you just said, like what FIFA would do the right thing. It's, you made enough money. You have more money than most countries combined. You know, you can allow a couple of youth teams there. It's like with, with like the Premier League, obviously here in the UK, you know, you think how, how the, you know, a, 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 a dad who was probably took to a game when he was a, he was a kid, maybe with his brother and his dad. You know, we'll say he went to watch Chelsea in the old, you know, the, stood in the old shed end. You know, you look now and you think, well, if he wants to take his kids now, it would be like thousand pound for a season ticket. Yeah. You know, few few hundred for for his kids, and you think you understand how parents think? Well, I can't do it anymore, especially you know, like I said, the cost of everything else. You know, going up a, a luxury like going to, going to the football. You know it. You know, it, it is it, football's always been a working class game for working class people. You know, it, it's always been, you know, football clubs have always been huge parts of, the, of their community, of their cities and their towns, you know, and 
people said for years, oh, the bubble's going to burst, you know, with the likes of these TV deals are, you know, ridiculous and, you know, the costs of tickets and the costs of, you know, the replica jerseys and they change, they have like three new kits every season now and they're like, you know, hundreds of hundreds of pounds, the bubble's going to burst and you think, but is it? Because as long as people are willing to pay, it's just going to keep going, isn't it? Um, and yeah, I know what the, you said there, the ticket prices are bad now, so just, it's a shame because it's, it's going to price out, you know, it's going to price a lot of people out of being able to go to games and, you know, and get that experience, that, you know, that, they, that they'll always remember and, you know, it could it could spark something inside kids and, you know, it, it's all about passing the torch on from generation to generation. That's what, that's what's made football what it is today, I think, you know. Yeah. Oh, maybe I'll have you come on the rant episode if I ever choose to do it. Just, <laughs> so, that I, just so that I spare the audience of hearing my voice the entire time. Um, but speaking of working class towns and working class teams, you're a fan of Ipswich Town. I want to switch gears for now. How did that fandom come about? Um, it's a bit strange, really. I can't actually explain it. I said I, I, I grew up well, I still live here now in, in a small town in North Wales and Ipswich is like a, a four hour car journey away. It's like the other side of other side of the country. It's, it's like absolute miles away. But when I picked them when I was like 13, it was around about the, the summer of the USA 94, I was sort of getting sort of re-engaged with football, having sort of fell out of love with it a bit through playing junior football um, and high school experiences and stuff. I sort of fell out of love with the game for a couple of years and got re-engaged, the Premier League was starting and I picked Ipswich again, don't know why. I remember telling my dad, I'm, I'm an Ipswich fan now and he was like, uh, okay, probably thinking, well, I'll give it six months and he'll, you know. But um, yeah, here, here I am like 20, was it 29 years later, yeah, still uh, still follow my go. Went three times last season to games, took my, took my two boys to games, but they're into their football now, so they their football watching comes goes over my football watching now. But yeah, I've always um always always followed them ever since then, really. Yeah. But it, I can't explain why. People always say to me, Well, did you live there? Is your dad an Ipswich fan? And you know, why do you support a team, you know, that no one else really around here supports and is like, you know, the other side of the country. And I honestly can't explain it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. My favorite thing about this podcast is finding out the stories about the teams that people love. And that is probably by far and large one of my favorites because it's just so random. Who do your kids like? Who do, who do the kids enjoy? Um, so my eldest son, he's a Leeds United fan. Okay. Um, and because some, some family from Leeds, uh, he's a Leeds United fan. And my youngest son, he's too young to sort of, he's, he's only just turned four, so he's sort of too young to have a team yet. Um, but Flynn, my seven-year-old, he's a Tottenham fan. Okay. And that is basically, they fell in love with football during the last Euros. Mm. And it was like Calvin Phillips playing for England from Leeds and Harry Kane for, for England. And, and you know, my, my little boy, he's age seven. He's Tottenham mad, absolutely Tottenham mad. And again, Tottenham's like three, three and a half hour drive away. From from here, you know, but yeah, he's got the kits. He's got you know a Tottenham bed set. He's got his Tottenham bag for school. And my eldest, he's you know every if he's not wearing his school uniform, he's wearing a lead shirt. It's just um, crazy. Reminds me a lot of how I was at that age. You know, just sort of living and breathing the game. Does it get you excited now? Like seeing, I, we talk about passing a torch. Now that you've passed the torch, and granted, they're not supporting the team that Dad loves, but. Yeah. Does it get you excited? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for, for years, like my eldest son, he's, he's 11. And it was only like last year, they both sort of got into football. Um, again, when the Euros was on. And before that, I'd be watching a game and they'd be saying, oh, not football, Dad, it's so boring. And I'd be thinking, oh, God, my, I can't believe this. I've got three sons and none of them like football. This is like, this is terrible. But now, so the youngest one, he's, he's too young to sort of get it. He still watches like, you know, or patrol and things like that. But the other two, they are absolutely, they are football mad. And like, we'll be watching a game and they're asking me questions. Where's he from? How tall is he? What's this? What's that? I'm trying to answer all the questions. And my, I'm, my wife's just sitting there with a grin on her face saying, you wanted this? You wanted <laughs> like football? You know, like waking me up, waking me up in the morning saying, have you heard the latest transfer news? You know, 
I've just heard this and so and so you know Leeds are trying to sign someone it's just like it's like it's it's like quarter seven in the morning can I at least like you know have a cup of coffee before we start you know talking about transfers but yeah they're absolutely absolutely mad on it now which is great yeah and you know I think I think once it's got you it's got you I mean like the, the, the Euros when England lost um which I apologize for I'm sorry I'm sorry well, yeah when they, they lost on penalties like yeah. like they were they were in tears oh no they were in they were in tears and I remember just thinking oh we've got them I've got them here they're hooked now you know if it's brought out that much emotion in them just through watching they'd only been football fans for like you know three or four weeks you know, I thought it's brought out this much emotion in them so so quickly. I thought, yeah, got them here. They're hooked now, and yeah, and they are absolutely, absolutely hooked, buzzing for the new season. Yeah, just give them hope that in 1994 there was a an Italian American boy in Long Island, New York, that cried watching Baggio miss that kick, losing a World Cup. But years later, there was redemption. The trophy was lifted in Berlin. It's, it could happen. And in fact, like we're talking now ahead of the women's Euro final. Yeah, I mean, we've, which, watched, we've, watched I mean, we've watched loads of that. Yeah, I and mean, they're really, uh, really excited for that. They've watched, um, certainly watched all the England games and watched plenty of others as well. They'll literally watch, um, there's a game on, you know, that they know when games run more than I do. You know, they'll be like, this game on, it kicks off at eight o'clock tonight. Can we watch it? It's on this channel. We think, yeah, 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 we'll put it on, you know, and really enjoyed the women's Euros. Yeah. And, um, I think uh, the Lionesses have got a great chance. I think on 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 Sunday <laughs> we'll be against Germany. Um, but yeah, I think uh, yeah, I think that'd be that'd be really good for them as well. You know, because I think when I was growing up, there was there was no women's football. There was no women's football, you know, to watch. And I think a, a really nice and good thing is they've not once said to me, "Oh, girls play football, Dad." It's just they just accept that there's there's women's teams and women play football. And I think that's I think that's a great. Um, you know, great advancement in in how it's going. You know, like I said, when I was growing up, there was it was there was no such no such avenue for girls to go down playing football. Certainly not where I live. Right. Just gonna watch watch any teams playing. You know. So for me, like that's the interesting thing. Like for me, because it was the opposite here. Yeah. It was the complete opposite here, where like my sister played, and you know, we both had the posters on our walls of you know the teams that we liked and the players that we liked and for me it was always the Italy men's team and you know Milan or whatever and she had you know the Azzurri she's you know she likes Juve and she also had the posters of the U.S. women's team like this was yeah and it was cool and it was just like a fun thing and like I we never gave it much thought that like this is not a thing outside of here and obviously you know the U.S. women's team was a big deal in our house. It's probably the only like team America that we all collectively cheered for. We didn't really have a connection to the men's team. We had a connection to the women's team. And I think partially through my sister playing and then they win a world cup. There's Brandy Chastain, that iconic moment. Um, and all the world cups that they've won since that it's sort of baffling to me to hear that outside of the States that it's not, especially in football mad countries that's the thing that like yeah, yeah. you know that and you know it, it, so it's it's this is we're at like this beautiful era now that we're gonna hopefully see the equilibrium shift and the women get talked about just as much as the men which is you know kind of what you want right yeah definitely yeah i think it's getting a lot more coverage now over here the you know the women's super league um is, is covered on the on like the sky sports we have here and like I said, the Euros coverage has been great. You know, they've had, had all the games on and it's um it's been really, really well received here. Yeah. I think that, you know, this is only this is only the start of it. It's gonna just grow and grow even more. You know, I so said it's great. Yeah. Because um, like I said, my, my boys now they said in in you know, girls in their classes in school, they're interested in football, they want to play football. There's more girls' teams now. And I think, you know, I think that's great because like I said, when I was growing up, you know, that here in North Wales, there was you, you didn't hear of girls teams or you know you certainly didn't hear of, of you know professional women's teams certainly not now time for a coffee break curva mundial is sponsored by mod cup coffee in jersey city but you can get it anywhere in the world from modcup.com 
Mod Cup, drink modern coffee. Use code MUNDIAL for 10% off your first order. To hit my favorite part of the podcast now, this is the three questions, rapid fire questions that I ask every guest, um, and they pertain to your club. So this is all Ipswich Town. So we're going to start off. If you could bring back one retired player to your club, alive or dead, who would it be and why? Question. I'd say from my era, I'd bring back Marcus Stewart. He was a striker. He had such a great eye for goal. He could uh, just score all different types of goals. And I think, um, you know, any team wants to be successful, has got to have a goal scorer. So Marcus Stewart for me. All right. So next question, money is not an option. You have an infinite supply of cash. More money than PSG, more money than Man City. If your club could sign one player today, who would it be and why? Just trying to think what position we need. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I think you're looking at strikers pay the bills. You know, strikers pay the bills and we need, we could do with someone that could get us 20, 30 goals. I'd say... Um, Cool. I'd take Son from Tottenham. Nice, nice. I think he's 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 world class. So good. Absolute world class. And finally, what has been your favorite moment as a fan of this game? Oh, favorite moment. On a personal point, it was my dad. My dad is a Wrexham fan. Um, oh wow. Yeah. Dad's a Wrexham fan. He's been a Wrexham fan since like the 1950s. And it was um, <clears throat> going to watch them at uh, a Wembley final with him. Um, you know, he'd waited like 60 years to see him. You know, he'd always said, we'll never make Wembley. And, you know, I'd love to always, always love to watch Wrexham play at Wembley. So uh, they got to like, sort of the non-league version of the FA Cup. They got to their, um, got to that version of the Cup uh, final. It was at Wembley. And um, it was going, going, to, going to Wembley with my dad and seeing him sort of um, witnessed something he never thought he'd see and they, they won as well. So uh, from a personal point of view, it was that, and I think that touches on what we've said previously about that, you know, passing on the baton and, you know, and also taking taking my kids to games, taking them to their first, their first game, you know, and just seeing them, their eyes light up when they see the, how green the pitch is and, you know, and the noise. And they spent on most of the game just looking around at, at people in the stands and the songs and, I think it's just taking all, all that. It, it, it reminded me of going to games when I was a kid, you know, the sounds, the smells and, you know, all, all that. I think um, from, from a personal point of view, it, it'd be that. Right. Um, from from an, an Ipswich point of view, um, you know, the Bobby Robson era was before my time, sadly, um, you know, watching us, you know, um, playing and beating some of the top teams in European football uh, would have been would have been great to see. Um, but yeah, it, even even when we, we come back up into the Premier League 2000, 2001, like that season, we finished fifth. You know, it was going to Anfield and winning and, you know, just taking teams, just taking teams on, going toe-to-toe with teams. Yeah, th- th- those are the sort of things that I, yeah, that I'd say. Love it. Oh, man, what a beautiful, beautiful memory. What's the feeling and consensus about Ryan Reynolds and Rob McAnally owning Wrexham? <laughs> Well, it's just it's still it's still surreal, really. It was surreal when it uh, sort of come out, and it's still surreal now. You know, it's Wrexham have been in the non-league for like sixteen, I think it's about sixteen, seventeen years now. Um, but to see like the journey of the club's come on, you know, it got saved by the fans, and then the fans have entrusted, you know, Rob and Ryan with <clears throat> the stewardship of the club. It's yeah, it's just really surreal. I mean, the, this new documentary series should be pretty interesting to watch. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, but um, yeah, I think it's just getting out, getting out of the non-league, getting back into the football league, and then I think they'll really sort of kick on. Then it's it's been eye-opening watching the journey of Wrexham just as a neutral. I I hate to say it, I've never heard of the team before until these two celebrities purchased it, and now I sort of can't get enough. It's if 
if they do what you want them to do, what everybody wants them to do, I think it might be the ultimate Cinderella story, even just to get to top flight football. You know, no one's saying you have to like win a trophy right away, but if, you know, because the journey already has been incredible. I mean, there's no reason why they can't do like a Brentford. Right. You know, I mean, Repsom, they, you know, they used to play against Brentford, you know, even to like a lesser degree, teams like, um, Swansea, Wigan, you know, they've been in the Premier League and won um, the FA Cup Brighton. You know, Wrexham played, played with these teams for years. So when people say to me, oh, well, Wrexham can't do it, it's like, well, Brentford have done it, Bournemouth have done it, Brighton have done it, Wigan have done it, Swansea. You know, there's numerous teams. You don't have to, you don't have to, you know, go and win a Champions League. But, you know, uh, it's like, well, why not? Why can't they get into the Premier League? And I think a lot of people at the time are saying, oh, they're going to get bored. Robin Ryan, they'll get bored and they'll just drop Wrexham like a stone, you know, and, and, you know, see where it gets them. But why not? Why can't it? Why can't it be a fairy tale? You know, there's got to be still, still got to be some romance in fairy tale in in football. You know, even the sky high ticket prices and everything, there's still, you know, you've still got to believe there's a bit of romance left in the game. I mean, Leicester did that for everybody years ago. Yeah. Leicester, exactly, yeah. Um, you know, I can speak from even just like an Italian soccer point of view, Palermo for a moment in the early 2000s did that. Uh, a team that was always in the doldrums was in Champions League and producing some of the best players in Italy. You, you know, it's um, there was that team in Champions League this past season, Sheriff, which yeah, yeah. I don't think anyone ever heard of them before. And they no. beat Real Madrid. It was like... Even if they don't do anything else, they can say they beat Real yeah. Madrid at least once. And the Champions League winning Real Madrid, that's the thing. Yeah, yeah. I think Wrexham, it's just got to get back in the Football League and I think it'll really sort of, I think it'll kick on a gear then. If they can get get out the get out the National League this year, you know, I think they can really, they can really kick on. You'll see more investment and more, <clears throat> more sponsors and stuff coming in. I think that'll really sort of kick them on. We've just got to get out of this National League. Love it. This is a uh, call to Robin Ryan. Please come on and chat with Matt and I. Um, yeah, I'm an official co-host today on multiple episodes. Yeah. So it's all good. <laughs> uh, Matt, I can chat with you for hours. Thank you so much for doing this. Again, the oh, book US, US 94. Go pick it up. Go read it. It's You will love it. If you witness that tournament, it'll it'll be better than any documentary you've seen. If you didn't witness that tournament, You'll be sorry you missed it. Um, thank you again, my friend. Thanks for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Follow us on Twitter at Curva Mundial Pod and subscribe to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening.